the Ragged Scratch podcast, presented by Ragged Foils Productions. I'm your host, Natalie. We're over halfway with season one, and if you've been listening from the start, you'll have a pretty good idea by now if you like what we're about or not, so if you're back for more, thank you. Yes, you. You're my favourite. In fact, you're my favourite so much that you won't mind if I ask you for a cheeky little favour, will you? The Discover Pods Awards are currently open for submissions, so if you've got time, if you fancy it, then please head to awards.discoverpods.com and give us a little nomination. Having people listen to the podcast is recognition enough, but being nominated will help us reach a wider audience and continue to grow, so we'd really appreciate it. Coming up this week, Maggie talks to strangers on treadmills, and I chat to writer Victoria Taylor-Roberts about the technology behind her story. But first, a piece that's close to my heart because I directed this one. When 28-year-old Sarah goes off to Raqqa to fight with the Kurds, what happens to those she leaves behind? An Ordinary House is adapted by Claire Finnemore from a recent BBC documentary about real events that happened in 2017 and stars Florence Olivier as Diana, Amber Muldoon as Sarah, Sharita Umir as Rachel and Jamie Newell as Mark. Dad was in a band when he was young. It's hard to believe now that they all had long hair, probably took LSD and other drugs and wore shades. He's still a rebel, though you wouldn't know it from his clothes now. I think my grandparents pretended not to know that he was part of the underground rock movement in the 1970s. Granny and Grandad were both extremely strict and could shut you up completely with a look. I always wanted her bedroom. Bigger than mine and looking out over the garden and the Oxford Canal. I found the small brown bear I thought I'd lost at the back of my desk drawer yesterday. Just holding that sweet furriness made me cry, remembering the last day I saw my sister who gave it to me. I watched her looking at maps on the kitchen table. She was sitting there wearing army uniform. The material was scratchy and stiff against my legs when she held me fiercely tight against her. She rolled up the maps when we heard Dad's car in the garage. He'd got used to the uniform by then. I knew when I woke up next morning that Sarah was gone. I went to school as usual, but all day I was distracted wondering where she was and whether she had actually gone to Brighton. There was a group of them, but she was the only woman. There's something I want to tell you. I was the lucky one, because we would laze in the summer house together or in the long grass in the meadow, backing onto our house talking. I was given a new name, Shahid Elin. Talking for hours, and so I gradually learnt the acronyms. The difference between the YPJ, the Kurdish Women's Militia, the YPG, the PKK, ISIS and Daesh. I don't know why she talked to me and not my older sisters. And maybe that was why Rachel was so angry when she died. 
I had already guessed how things would be, so I just felt very tired and very sad. I'd gone to a party, and when it was offered, well, that's when I started taking. But Dad was devastated, completely. If it hadn't been for the PKK, uh, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, I might have survived long enough to make a difference. <laughs> the training was so hard, the sand and dust always stinging my eyes. I miss the green grass meadows. And you, Diana. So much. Did you know I was with you all those days when you should have been in class? Trying to ward off dirty old men, people watching you with bad intent. Holding your hand when you walked too close to the edge. I was fucking angry, and I still am. I hate it that my sister is famous for being the first British woman to die fighting in Syria. That's what Sarah's famous for, not for fighting to protect fellow women who were and are still in extreme distress. She died at the age of 26, for God's sake. But if she wasn't already dead, I was ready to kill her for what she did to Dad and me and all our friends. My younger sister Diana stopped going to school. She was a truant for all those months while Sarah was out there training. Mum was the one who encouraged us. Do you know, I went on my first march when I was ten. Ban whale hunting in Japan, that was it. We were always marching against something, or going out to join a gathering down the Cowley Road or outside the town hall. You know, the sort of thing. People with banners and placards, usually women, shouting out, drinking tea, sharing stories. It was a belonging thing for Sarah and for Mum, being part of something important. Mum had such energy and determination. When do you think it started? What? When did it all start? It began when Sarah went to university. Direct action, that's what she called it. She got in with radical left-wing anti-capitalist stuff with her Sheffield buddies. Then she dropped out. When she came back here, she was always out at meetings. Did you know where? No, I never knew where she was going. She didn't ever ask me to come with her, though I know sometimes she was scared. Everything in our house looked different after Mum died. The kitchen was too quiet. There were no boxes of drugs, bottles of special drinks, trolleys of equipment to bump into when I'd had a few too many in the student bar. There was no Bob Dylan or Lou Reed softly playing. The brightly coloured towels and nighties disappeared off the washing line. There were no words to say how painful it all was. Two days later, Sarah left. When Sarah announced her decision to go to Raqqa, I said, 
I accept your decision, but you may be killed. And I said, well, it's been nice knowing you. I feel a lot of guilt. I feel a lot of grief. I feel her loss every day. Dad, I was so proud that you went out there, out to Kobani and Raqqa, and you met the commander who finally agreed to let me go to the front line to fight. I was just one person. There were lots of us joining the fighting. But thousands of Kurds died. <laughs> when Sarah was small, I remember how she rescued a bird trapped under a net in the school playground. It was being tormented by other children. Oh, she was fiercely protective. She wouldn't let the frightened creature get hurt. So the bullies turned on her. She stood up to them all. I tried to build all my children up to be free and confident. To do what they wanted, to be what they wanted to be. My own mother had very high expectations. I was never good enough. She once said to me, When you played that violin, I was so embarrassed I felt sick. That went deep. I went out there to see things through Sarah's eyes. They gave me her diary. Seeing her very clear writing on the page was like listening to her talk. Oh, it's hard bringing up girls. After they're about eleven, you feel awkward around them. Much easier for mothers. I find it hard to express big emotions. And sadly, Sarah got that from me. I didn't talk with her enough. I was looking forward to talking with her as a mature woman. Dad stopped playing music. His guitars and all his other instruments were untouched and unloved. Stopped singing and writing music. I guess you know he's quite famous. He composed the music on many films and TV series. Now he's the go-to guy for eastern wind instruments like the Ney, the Duduk and Bansari. Yes, honestly, I'm okay. I will talk to someone. I will, but not yet. My name, Shahid Elin, means I have joined the martyrs. I want you all to be proud of me and pleased for what I stood for and achieved. I think Sarah was very happy when she was out there. She was brave. The YPJ women I met were all so committed and so young. Like Sarah, they take on the names of martyrs. They give up everything to fight for their cause. Out there, they have nothing. Two and a half million Kurds are oppressed by IS and Turkey. We're so lucky. We've got each other. Dad, Diana, and me. Me. I just want a normal life. I was moved to the front line. 
It, it was an honour. It was your death, Sarah. <laughs> I was so nervous I would leave the safety catch on like some of the girls, but I turned out to be a crack shot. I was going to join the snipers. We were sent to the front line at Afrin. It was very exciting. At last, I was going to do what I was trained and born to do. I was ready. My whole life was leading up to this. Although my sister turned out to be an expert with her AK-47, she was killed by a Turkish airstrike when the building she was in was obliterated. You see the pictures in Sunday magazines and you turn the pages. Watch the news with another beer or gin and tonic. But Sarah did the brave thing. What else can I say? So I am here with writer Claire Finnamore, who wrote An Ordinary House. Hello, Claire. Welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast. Hi there. I had the honour of directing that piece myself, so I have a bit more personal investment in this one. Could you tell us a bit about you? Sure. Well, my writing really started by accident because I lost part of my sight very suddenly over over a weekend in January 2010. Gosh. Um, and my life completely changed. I had to give up my job, et cetera, et cetera, and driving and so on. After a while of doing very little, after having been a very busy person, I uh, joined Gloucestershire University and did a creative writing course. Mm. And I found that I really got into it. Um, and I've always loved radio and my feeling was that I, I wanted to write for radio. So as soon as I finished that first MA, I did another one at the wonderful Bath Spa University in script writing mm. and met people like Jeremy Mortimer, um, radio and um, TV and theatre people and lots of actors. Um, and I did some collaborative work with some other students. Um, we put on a play at Bath Fringe called When Will It Be Me? And it was the best feeling to be the writer at the back, um, mm. watching actors or hearing actors um, in front of us and having an audience who were laughing. I mean, <laughs> it's just, just the best thing. So um, my life changed and I'm now, I would now be brave enough to call myself a writer, I think. I should say so. Do you have a favourite genre or style to write in? Very often a real life story is my starting point. And then I'll maybe move off into a different sphere. Right now I'm working on something called Camera in the Sky. And okay. it's about, um, it looks at people who lie at work um, and the consequences if you have a high-powered job, like being a pilot. Um, mm -hmm. My husband's a pilot, so I've used some of the technical language from him to make things realistic. And I've written some plays uh, based on friends of mine, for example, one called Shopping in the Dark, which is about a blind person and her trip to Tesco's and how absolutely frightening that can be. Yeah. And that works well on, on radio because you can show the, the sounds of traffic and 
her calling a cab, etc., which turns out not to be a cab at all. Oh, gosh. And there's a GCHQ plot going on, so I've had a bit of fun with that. It's lovely that you have this passion about writing true stories. And, and so, yeah, to go back to An Ordinary House, um, obviously yeah. that is based off a true story itself, a, a story that you'd heard in a documentary. Um, yes. You then got permission from the real-life person that Mark's character is based on to write the adaptation do you so do you have any advice for um for writers on approaching strangers to ask if you can write about their story well I wouldn't actually have done it I wouldn't do it the way I did it (laughs) right (laughs) um because I sent off my um short play and uh it wasn't until it got selected that I thought oh right I better contact the person who is part of this important family. Mm. Um, and so I was quite concerned that he might say, well, no, it's, it's, far, too, um, it's far too precious or whatever. Um, and he was wonderful because he said, of course I give my permission. But I think it is, it is quite difficult, um, that letter or that um, phone call that you do need to make to say, um, what do you think about this idea? So it's very much about how you present it. Yeah. It is about actually contacting people early in the process because you don't want to waste your writing time. Of course, yeah. Although I suppose maybe with a documentary it's slightly different because they have already told that story from a factual perspective and put it out in the world. But as long as you're not taking gross liberties and altering it, Absolutely, Natalie. I think that's a really good point. I mean, the, the story about the Bulger family that came out was how you should never do it, mm. I think, um, because the family didn't get to hear till the film had been made, I think. So, and, and it's, uh, you know, an absolute tragic story. So course, yeah. you, you do have to be very careful with um, what you pick and treat each case in an individual way, I think. Um, yeah. But it's, it's great to... to have so many stories out there and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of other people aren't writing about that very particular story as well Mm. the one that I chose yeah could you actually talk us through a little bit about your physical process for writing if you don't mind um what what if anything is different for you do you have specific software do you write it by hand unfortunately I can't read my own writing anymore I can't read normal print of course. Uh, I have to have everything on a computer and um, the font size is really built up. It was hopeless for me really studying film, which I had to do at university because I, I really couldn't see it. So I just had to listen. Yeah. But that's made me wa- more aware of um, the power of sound and how when you're writing for radio, that's what you're really after. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been a, an interesting learning experience. Yeah. Thank you ever so much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you once again to Claire and all the actors involved in this piece. At the time of recording, the documentary Anna, the Woman Who Went to Fight ISIS is still available on BBC iPlayer and I highly recommend watching it, particularly if you don't know much about the situation in Syria and Turkey. Additionally, in light of the ongoing war, I do encourage you to consider donating to charities that work closely with refugees, such as helprefugees.org, Médecins Sans Frontières and Amnesty International, and I'll leave links to all three of those in the episode notes. 
If you're in or nearby Sirencester, Ordinary House writer Claire Finnamore is part of the Somewhere Else Writers Group. Local writers are encouraged to attend and you can find out more about them at somewhere-else-writers.org. Other shout-outs? Sharita Umir, who played Rachel, is co-directing The Norman Conquests by Alan Akebourne for Tower Theatre in Stoke Newington. The production is a trilogy of plays which will be performed at Tower Theatre in March 2020. For more details, check out towertheatre.org.uk. Finally, the writer-slash-director of the next piece, Victoria Taylor-Roberts, is also a singer-slash-songwriter. Multi-talented? Listen out for a clip from her track, That Smile, at the end of Like the Blood in Your Veins. And if you want to hear more, you can find her album, Trading Metaphors, on Spotify. Speaking of which, let's head to the gym, where we find a lonely Maggie on the treadmill, waiting for the avatar of the love of her life to turn up on the treadmill's inbuilt social running app. Like the Blood in Your Veins was written and directed by Victoria Taylor-Roberts, edited by Kirsty Gilmore, and stars Natalie Chisholm as Maggie. Right then, Maggie. Oh, Meg, remember, cute, feisty, but not intimidating. The kind of girl that just loves last-minute camping. So, Meg, where are we heading to today, then? Still haven't done the Scottish Highlands. Nah. No thank you to bet. I must say I found you rather disappointing. Expected breathtaking mountainous trek, not downtown traffic and concrete monuments. Perhaps that's my fault for not knowing my geography better, but still, you'd think they'd stick to places with a view. Which takes Frankfurt off the agenda. Won't be picking you again either. A world of nature's wonder to explore, and they have me weaving through a bunch of beer-bellied day-trippers pounding the pavement of an urban touristic hotspot. Felt more like my commute to work than a scenic escape to foreign lands. Proven you for a liar, at least, hasn't it, Helen? Oh, Frankfurt is glorious, Maggie. Craig and the boys and I loved it. The riverside is so pretty. If you can find a travel buddy, you really must go. If you can find a travel buddy. Aim that straight between the ribs, didn't you, sis? I have friends. Every Friday night I'm in the pub with touchy-feely Frank and the others from the office. And I catch up with the old gang from uni all the time. Well, not all the time, but, well, they're busy with work and kids and life and I'm busy with... Okay, so perhaps there's not a specific person I can think of that I'd do a city break with, but I prefer being a solo traveller. It's exciting. You're free to go wherever you fancy. No compromises. Find a friend. (laughs) Where are you, Alex? Will I catch up with you on the snaking lanes of County Wicklow, braving the breezy spittle of an Irish spring? Or are you, like me perhaps, leaning towards Tuscany? Oh, I do love those sunflowers bordering the Roman roads. It's like diving into a Van Gogh painting, gliding through a sea of textured sunshine. Oh, look at me waxing lyrical. That's what fraternising with young poets does to you, I suppose. I've no doubt you're a poet, Alex. With that avatar, how could you be anything else? I can tell by the breadth of those shoulders you're not the pale, weedy type who skulks in libraries. You're an intellectual who hosts impromptu soirees where everyone drinks red wine from whiskey glasses, admiring the unmentioned fencing trophies acting as bookends on a corner shelf. I could see you with a foil in your hand, strong thighs, poised to lunge. There's something of the swashbuckler about you, Senor Rojas. What was that? Oh, you're incorrigible. Sunflowers, you say? Fine, then Tuscany it is. Uh Uh-oh, Sophia is here. 
Buongiorno, Signora Fava. Got your little cronies with you today. There they are, the Florentines, Sylvia, Giada. Honestly, ladies, you've a world of national parks at your fingertips and you're here running in your own backyard, so to speak. Although it is a pretty nice backyard, I must admit. Oh, and Roberta, they've invited you along to their girly workout. Oh, it's been a while, you must be back in favour. Oh, I can see why. You've changed your avatar. Wide-eyed puppy, nice choice. Far less confrontational than a set of boobs falling out of your halter neck. Don't get me wrong, it was a very pretty photo of you. But then that was the problem, wasn't it, Roberta? Oh well, you're back in the fold. All is forgiven. Just don't outrun them. Sophia doesn't like that. Hmm, there are so many Americans here today. Oh, come on, Alex, where are you? Ah, Artie Burns coming at me. How are you, Artie? Or should we say Arthur? What was it? An ode to a favourite uncle? I mean, how old are you, Artie? 30? 35? Parents can be so cruel, can't they? I should know. <laughs> Who looks at a tiny baby girl with a cupid bow mouth and doll-like fingers and thinks we'll name her Margaret? Anyway, let's keep that between you and me, shall we? In our little version of the world, I'm Meg. Meg is dainty. Meg is transatlantic. The button-nosed girl that gets a frat boy's heart racing. Meg is not a 42-year-old single woman living alone in a three-bedroom house on the edge of London with one cat one goldfish and a recurring case of dry rot in the dining room for company. That's Margaret, or Maggie to those she's broken bread with. And that, Artie, is not who I choose to be. Artie, you could imagine a 1950s Jewish housewife squawking it through the walls of a New Jersey apartment at her Budweiser-swelling armchair-bound husband. Artie, dinner's on the table. Oh, meant to ask, were you born in San Francisco or did you flee there from some conservative northern state like, I don't know, Seattle? Did you run away, Artie, determined to live the creative life for which you were destined? Oh, Meg's just had an epiphany. Maybe you're not a ladies' man, Artie. Maybe you're a man's man. Oh, why didn't that occur to me? I've spent the last couple of months fending off that chirpy grin of yours, and all along, you just wanted a bit of platonic camaraderie. A UK running buddy. Oh, glad we cleared that up. It's been weighing on me. Well, it's been so nice to chat, Artie. Time to pick up the pace and say ta-ta, as we Brits do. I reckon I can push myself to 7k today. I've had a good night's sleep. I'm feeling strong. Oh, come on, Alex. I know you're here somewhere. I can feel you. Oh, I see you there, LF190, blah, blah, blah. Sri Lankan, eh? Odd time of the day for you to be popping up. Can't sleep. And uh, who's that? Alice. Long time no see, Mademoiselle Tolbert. Got the diet back on track, finally. Quick tip. If you're going to do a selfie for your avatar, angle down, not up. Takes years off you, and about ten kilos. Okay, Senor Rojas, I'm becoming impatient. Where are you? It's Tuesday. You always run Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Sundays. 12pm Phoenix time. Apart from Sundays when you get an early start. Took me a while to figure that one out. Oh, you're such a tease. Speaking of tease, be honest. How old is that photo of yours? Tell me, is your hair still full around your face, casually ruffled like an 80s daytime soap opera star? The black polar neck was a nice touch, very Javier Bardem. <laughs> oh, I suppose that makes me Penelope Cruz. Well, I can live with that. Yes, very Bardem. Although you're far more handsome. There's a semblance of the Clooney there. I think it's the twinkle in the eyes and that lascivious smile. Very cheeky. If you were a girl, they'd call it a fuck-me smile. They do that to girls, you see, objectify them. Do you feel objectified, Alex? <laughs> of 
course you don't. If you did, why would you meet me here, wherever here happens to be? We really do have the world at our feet. Tuscany, Switzerland, New Zealand, South Island, the Yosemite Valley. You know I'll find you. And when I don't, you find me, don't you, Alex? We find each other. I think you and I would make beautiful babies over there in Phoenix. Is it warm there most of the year? I'm rather fond of my seasons, you see, and I have some lovely woolen winterwear that would be such a shame to waste. Ellen bought me some just this Christmas, a soft cashmere hat and gloves set in August orange. I don't think it's actually the name for it. I imagine the merchandise tag would have said something like burnished gold. But I like August orange, like the trees in Dunbar Park. Oh, you'd love Dunbar Park. When we come home to see family and I show you and our beautiful baby off to my smug sister, we'll stroll through it with the pram showing little... Oh, we haven't named her, have we? I'll let you choose something exotic. After your mother, perhaps. Paloma, like that squeaky little singer. That's Spanish, isn't it? Strolling through the park with little Paloma after dinner, my mum, my dad, my sister and her brood beside us. You won't get on with Craig, he's far too stuffy. And older, of course. They'll remark on the age gap between us, no doubt, and I know you'll laugh and reach for my hand and say in that deep, Latin-tinged Phoenix drawl, love sees no age, only beauty. And my sister will visibly swoon. <laughs> Poor Ellen. Not the lonely ending she'd envisaged for sad little Maggie. Oh, Meg, must remember. Oh, where are you, Alex? I'm struggling to contain myself thinking about that moment you appear on screen. I shall count the metres between us, diminishing until I fall into you. Those seconds of intimacy when we merge, when I flow through you like the blood in your veins. I envy anyone who hasn't felt that. Of course, I try my best to linger there, but... Oh, we are just victims of the programme, are we not? Before I know it, I'm beyond you, your face elusive once more as you fall in behind. I can't even turn around to look, to say goodbye. It's a cruel place, this shared world of ours. We are but star-crossed lovers, <laughs> the type that poets write about. Have you written about me? I'd love to think that you had. Alex, where are you? I'm here with Victoria Taylor Roberts, who wrote Like the Blood in Your Veins that you just listened to. Hello, Victoria. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been great having you on board. And actually, you're both writer and director in this case. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I started writing many, many, many years ago, but only really for the stage and for film um, about 12 or 13 years ago and have um, had a few things on stage now and had a few things on screen now. So I'm kind of covering all bases, really. Um, and the moving into radio is a, a newer thing and really exciting for me. Oh, and so, how did you find that writing in a, a newer style for specifically audio? It's really easy to underestimate um, how much skill goes into that. I'm awed by writers who write a lot for radio because you have to think that everything that normally visually, any visual gag, any visual nuance suddenly has to be communicated to an audience 
through not just either sound effect or through very clever dialogue, clever text. It's a whole new ball game, isn't it? So out of all of the things you have written, what's your favourite? I tend to err towards dark comedy in spite of myself. Mm-hmm. I do tend to, <laughs> I can't help it. I tend to find quite topical things um, with a humorous slant and then explore them. More recently, a piece I'd written called Laptop Land, which I'm still pitching about, which okay. is a, essentially an exploration of corporate data mining and the potential um, Machiavellian um, kind of consequences of that. And it's set in Santa's workshop. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a, it's essentially following um, a small group of elves who have whose work has been um, taken out of the workshop and they've stopped making lovely wooden trains and blocks and dolls and have started data mining the letters that small children sends into Santa. Oh, well, I love that. I think sometimes the darkest things can be the most fun to explore. Can't Absolutely. We? Yeah. So you, you said you've been writing for, for some time now. And have you found that over that time, the stories that you tend to write about have changed? Have you have you moved from moved on to different topics? Yes, definitely different topics. I've matured. I think I had to go through that exorcism that a lot of um, more ingenue writers do, which is let's talk about love, um, trying to constantly reproducing just um, the more superficial um, human relationships. And then as you learn more about writing, you began to realise that everything is multifaceted. Everything mm. has layers. Um, and I'm sure somebody cleverer than me once said every story is an onion. And it's very true. It's mm. very true. When we're looking at um, what we think a character needs, um, it is um, at one level below what they want. And there's there's so many aspects to, to human life and how that interacts with the world around them. And it's amazing as a writer how it teaches you about life as well as life teaching you how to write. Writing teaches you a little how to live as well. Yeah. I'm an actor so that's part of my training is taking a script and looking at okay what is the character saying but what do they mean by that what is their goal for not only that moment but that scene that week in their life and their entire life. I think that's the absolutely I've got a deep love for actors um, slightly biased because I was one myself for many (laughs) years before writing but I think um, the skill of um, dramatization is so misunderstood actors are writers best friends they really can be Mm. and as a writer there's a real joy in watching an actor absorb the character you've created understand it augment it and bring it to life it's an utter joy to be a part of so maggie the main character she's interacting with different people in a virtual world through her treadmill could you talk to us through how much of this tech is things you've experienced and how much of it is you extending the design to the next level is this a real treadmill that you've come across that does this in my gym there is a row of these treadmills and they have little screens lots do now and on the screen you have an interactive button you can press it and before you know it you have chosen whether or not you're going to run through tuscany the french alps um, south island new zealand and you have this visual on the screen and not only do you have the landscape that you run through you have fellow runners all around the world who are also essentially plugged in to this machine who have logged in and even uploaded a photo avatar and you're running um, virtually and they use the word literally virtually yeah. with them um, i found it 
incredibly weird the first few times that I did it. And then I began to think about these little worlds. I kept seeing the same people at, at certain times, you know, and would create this little idea. You know, that's where the idea came from, this idea that suddenly there was this virtual community. It's like an extension of Facebook. Yeah. Falling, lo- falling in love with people you will never meet. It's, yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, that sounds like a very fancy gym. Right. I, I don't know any gyms that have that kind of tech on the treadmills, but uh, but it's almost like something out of Black Mirror. I suppose so. I hadn't really thought of it like that. Um, but yeah, people have made that comparison. And I think um, one of the first series of Black Mirror had a treadmill episode in it. I think what I wanted to do was to look at that concept of love um and loneliness and how we find ways of expelling that of finding a community even if we're not being invited into one we will infiltrate one and she's infiltrated a community so that she can feel a little less lonely (laughs) (laughs) told you dark yeah it's very dark (laughs) do you have anything coming up that you want to tell anyone about or otherwise where can we find you are you online Please feel free, anybody, to um, add me as the, on their Twitter accounts. I am at WistfulVTR. And my stuff is, is about, but there's nothing coming up to date. Well, thank you very much, Victoria. Thank you so much for that, Natalie. That's it for this week. Thank you to all of the creatives involved in putting this episode together. And thanks to you for listening. The Ragged Scratch Podcast, brought to you by Ragged Foils Productions, was produced and hosted by me, Natalie Winter. Play edits, recording and episode edits by Natalie Winter and Kirsty Gilmore. The Ragged Scratch Podcast theme music was composed by Alex Jones. You can find us online at Ragged Foils across Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we've been tagging this week's creative so you can find out more about them and their work. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do go to rate, review and subscribe as it will help other people find the podcast. And we'll see you next week for our penultimate episode of this season. Bye.